Hi everyone, this is Adriano Goldman, Director of Photography of The Crown, and you're watching The Gold Creative Show. Hey everyone, my name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions, and this is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we're talking with Adriano Goldman, returning to Go Creative Show to talk about his work as director of photography for The Crown Season Four. And there's so much to get to with Adriano. He talks about, of course, how he captures the Princess Diana story, how he lights for these incredibly dark and unique scenes in the series. We talk about how he manages four cameras on set and so much more. You guys are going to love this episode. Before we get there, I want to mention a couple of things. First, we want you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, just search Go Creative Show anywhere you get your podcasts and you will find us and subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. I also want to thank our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. Now there's so much to get to, so let's get right to it with Adriana Goldman ASC, BSC, ABC, and the director of photography for The Crown, season four. So I'm here with Adriano Goldman, the director of photography for The Crown, and so happy to have you back, Adriano. It was only just a few months ago that we had you here. I feel like everything in the world has changed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it does feel like a diff very different world when season three came out, you know, last November and and now this one. Uh, it is a diff very different planet we live in. And it was a very different process throughout, especially post. I mean, doing post for season four, almost 100% of my post work, my grading work was done remotely. Uh, I'm very, I feel very lucky because we actually could like, continue the work we had to finish shooting, like this is like mid-March. My last shooting day was the 14th of March. Wow. And and then it was very lucky because then the UK came to a lockdown on the 23rd, I think like just a week later than that. And then for, for a few weeks, I think the entire production was like, you know, are we gonna be able to deliver the season in November like promised? And but the post, uh, the post supervisor, and all the editors, and you know the colorist, and the VFX guys, and the the sound and music, they could somehow more than you know a shooting crew can work. You know a shooting crew can never work remotely, but you know those guys can. And Netflix were really supportive, and you know they. So it was really a, a struggle, I imagine. But it did work. So, you know, even like developing specific technologies so I could grade remotely. So I got a, you know, a, um, a calibrated iPad was delivered to me. And you, I was having remote sessions, you know, with this, this very precise link with no time delay with my colorist at Warner Brothers in Soho. So it was really interesting and efficient in a sense. And again, luckily enough, by the end of June, we had a little break on the, let's say, the overall lockdown uh, um, protocols um, that allowed, allowed me to actually go to Warner Brothers for my final grading session, because that's what you want to do. I mean, you want to be with your colorist and share the same monitor. Because although, I mean, we do believe in technology, but, you know, different monitors, you know, different links, different, you know, distance. And so it, it's tricky. You, you think you're sharing the same uh, reference, but it's not really precisely the same. So when you say less red here or less blue there, is it really the same image that he's seeing on the other end? But anyway, I think we made it very efficient. We know each other. We've been working for years and years. So my colorist, for instance, he really knows me, knows my taste. He knows the show really, really, really well. So I think, you know, if this was the first season, I think we would all, you know, have felt like kind of, you know, the challenge would have been much more serious. But I think because this is a solid team that, you know, have been working together for years now, I think we just made it work. You know, it was a big team effort to be able to deliver it in November. And now we are, here we are. Yeah. So I'm curious, the iPad that you, well, first of all, you were given a calibrated iPad for 
your post-production color work. What, yeah. Was there an, a specific app that you were using? Yeah, I think Warner Brothers and Netflix together, they developed, I mean, I'm sorry if I don't really know all the details in terms of like the, the, the app development. No, I mean, I'm just, if you don't know, you don't know. I was just curious. But it's fine. So my monitor really was technically mirroring the colorist monitor. Hmm. I could even see the cursor, you know, his cursor coming on my on on my on my iPad screen, uh, and all the power windows or the areas because you know you can be very precise when you're color grading something. It's like the best Photoshop you can possibly get because yeah. you're grading it live. So. Um, it was really efficient. So whatever I was, I, I could eventually ask him to do, I could eat physically, physically, remotely, but I could see him doing it. So I think the workflow was, so the iPad, and I think the, 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 the um, sorry, the app is called Clearview. Okay. So the Clearview oh. app was mirroring his monitor, and I had my laptop for communication. So it could be a Zoom call. So... You don't use the same device for both. So one is the visual reference and the other one is communication. So it was a, it was a nice, you know, little station I had at home with, you know, monitors and, you know, other devices. But it's really interesting. Yeah, really. I really like it. And also this somehow opens a, a kind of an entire new world of options for us DPs because up to this point, you have to make yourself available to actually go to the grading sessions, wherever they are. I mean, I've done it so many times. I mean, I shot Burnt, for instance, here in the UK with John Wells, but I had to grade it at Technicolor LA. So I used to go to LA for two weeks. I mean, that yeah. was, you know, the if you're available to, they, they take you, they take you wherever. And, but now that's still very much my preference, but I probably don't need to be there for the entire duration. I can have a few remote sessions and then be present just for the last two, whatever. What also allows me to be available for other stuff and, you know, I don't need to. So it's very interesting. I think we all liked very much this new technology. There's limitations, of course, but it also frees us from actually having to be there physically every single day. So it's very interesting. I think it's very, it's a, this new, it's, it's good, especially, I mean, because it's so concerning uh, for a DP when you shoot a film and then you ask, for instance, when you rap, you ask, when is my color grading happening? Yeah. And they say, oh, maybe April, maybe early May or whatever. So how can I schedule that so far ahead? But then whatever happens now these days, I, I can say, okay, worst case scenario, we'll, we'll do it remotely. And I, we didn't have this option a year ago. So I think this this is, it's good. It's not ideal, but it's good. It gives us another option. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine there's also a benefit in looking at it on an iPad anyway, because so many people watch shows on their devices. It's a very contemporary uh, reference and a, uh, and a platform. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah. Now, you were involved in The Crown since season one. So all the way, all the way through, you've been there. Can you talk to me about what is different about season four? I can I can um, try <laughs> in a sense that, of course, I, I realize it's different. And I also see, uh, I, I get feedback from people like even my sister, you know, just a, just a big fan. She's not, she doesn't work in the industry, but she's a big fan. And she comes back to me asking what's different. What is the, you know, the progression, visual progression. I, I think I, I, my point that when I say I can try, it's the, basically because I don't think all the decisions are conscious decisions. Hmm. I think this is, of course, we again, because we've been working together for so long and we want to challenge ourselves. We don't want to repeat ourselves, although there will be some visual elements that you repeat, some locations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there was, this was part of the challenge. I mean, how can the show evolve visually? I think initially you think, well, it's going to naturally evolve. The design evolves, for instance, on seasons three and four, we could finally start embracing, like I told you when we when we spoke a few months ago, that you, we could finally embrace modern architecture, modern design. Yes. Um, when we step, when we when we leave the royal life, 
the royal, the, the, the sorry, the royal family life to visit other sets and other characters, you know, you just you just you just try, we just see different texture. I think the first two seasons, they were much more, if that makes sense, much more period-like. Yeah. So we could we could consciously be more uh, romantic. You know, even the way I was lighting it and the filtration and the cho- the choice for very old lenses. You know, the Cook Pancras we had on the on the first two seasons, they were warmer. They were way more. I'm going to say romantic. I think they they almost like immediately delivered this period look. And then when we jumped to season th- season three, again different period, different cast, etc. So my first choice was like trying to upgrade the glasses. So I, I still want to be period-like. I still want to feel the, the period sort of look. But I, I think I should move forward in time. So we move to the Zeiss Super Speeds. I think there's still vintage. I mean, because this is 2020 and those lenses came out like in the 70s. Yeah. So they are, they're still vintage, but they are sharper, they're more modern. They are faster than the, the, the Cook Pancros. And they they do deliver a, a more contemporary look. I think they do. And I've been using less and less diffusion on the lens. So the the the, the Zeiss Super Speeds they are naturally soft lenses. I mean, soft in contrast, and they you know they they glow on the highlights, etc. So it felt to me that they were soft enough by nature that I didn't have to add much more filtration like I did on the first two seasons. So it's subtle. It really is subtle because we still rely very much on the muted colors, you know, the lighting strategies, you know, very much the same, you know, lights coming from outside the windows or the practicals, and it should still feel very realistic and believable and almost touchable. Right, but there is a natural kind of evolution that I somehow go with the design. Uh, so by studying and by being with Martin Childs, you know, so closely during prep, I I just realize I just realized that okay, I can see things are changing. You know, color, p- uh, wallpapers, modern cars, modern furniture. So you know, it just feel um, uh, pushed somehow to, you know, bring something new. And again, and even like, you know, even the technology throughout this for four or five years, in terms of like lighting technology, it changed. I mean, I used to have, I used to rely much more on HMIs and tungsten sources on seasons one and two. Now we rely very much more on, on LED sources. They're much faster to work with they're you know more controllable you can change the color so it just speeds things up and i'm never i've never been very i've never been really nostalgic in a sense that i don't need to be that accurate uh, in terms of like using period source sources for a period show why so i think it's just because i'm very much interested on learning more about technology, and also you do realize by testing these, this, you know, brand new sources that you, especially on a, even on a big show like The Crown, you, you still need the pace, you know, you still need to deliver, you know, 25, 30 setups a day. And I, I timing and or saving time um, for me is a very, very important thing in a sense that I want to buy myself time to improve my my shots. I want to. I want to be able to give the directors more time to work with the you know cast on set and rehearse. So I just I gain speed by working with LED sources. I mean that's very clear. It's very clear how much faster it is. Um, and you can mimic. You can easily mimic the HMIs and the tungsten sources by you know modulating your color temperature and intensity. And you don't really. I don't think you really miss. Uh, that, but but you know, I know that that some DPs do like to go back in time and and try period sources. M- maybe I don't know. Maybe for a feature film, maybe for a, a show where you maybe you know the director's style, and if you know that he's not after quantity, he's more after quality, then you can probably try a different strategy 
that is not so much about speed. It's much more about, I don't know, uh, period accuracy. But like, you know, I, I, I'm not so much attached to that. I, of course I am because by choosing period lenses, you know, you are somehow in going back in time and, you know, trying to recover or find again something that we used to see on the 70s and 80s in terms of like a, you know, that sort of specific film texture. So, of course, you know, there's, there's you know, research in terms of how to achieve an interesting period look. Period look. But there's also the methodology, you know, the, the, the need for speed, in a sense, the yeah. need for the, 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 the consideration we all have for efficiency. And, 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 but, but basically, I think one of my main considerations is to buy myself time and, you know, not struggle so much with technology in a sense that, for instance, when you deem a tungsten source, the color changes. And now you have to think about an additional filtration to compensate for that extra warmth. And that's your time going, right? Mm. So the, the LED sources just allow me to do all that without having to do too much math, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just it's just speed. It's just speed. You know, yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking about that, but you're right. The those old lights, they do get more saturated kind of as you dim them down. They do. They do, really do. I mean, I still use um, filament bulbs on my practicals. Well, that's what I was going to uh, say. Like, you must be yeah. using period practicals. I mean, you have to be. Oh, everything that is in shot is period. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Even, I mean, th that, um, it's funny because I'm, about that, I am very, um, let's say, stubborn about, you know, everything that is in shot should be period-like. Uh, so even the, the, the um, like they say, the, the pearl bulbs or the frosty bulbs, I don't like them. I really think they should be, I should be able to see the filament yeah. even through the lampshade, you know, because that's more period-like. So I think in, in that sense, I'm very precise and I try to be very accurate. So everything that is in short should be uh, accurate, period. Uh, Are period you one. using, yeah. in those instances, are you using LEDs that are kind of meant to look like older lenses? I mean, older lights. I mean, you even see that just in Home Depot now. You can get lenses that kind of have that old looking filament. From yeah. far away, it might it might translate. Just curious, or are you using those or are you actually going back to original filament bulbs? We did go to back to original film bulbs. You can still find them in some stores here. And I and then my gaffer found a few. Well, he, I think a forty watt, forty watt bulbs, sixty and a hundred. And then he bought I, I don't know maybe like a hundred of each. Yeah. So that could cover could cover the whole uh, uh, season. Um, no, yeah, no. We had to somehow find um, suppliers for those specific, you know, old bulbs. I mean, they're brand new. I mean, you can still find them brand new. Of course, you don't have to go to uh, prop houses. For, for the actual bulbs, but you know, more and more, it's very hard. I mean, on, let's say, if I try to find them here near home, you, you just can't, you have to go to, you know, bigger or more uh, traditional uh, shops, you know, stores, yeah. What would you say was the biggest lighting challenge you had in season four? On, on, on the fifth episode, when Fagan breaks into the palace, and they finally have that face-to-face -face conversation. Paul Whittington, the director, said, well, she's supposed to be asleep, so no pranks should be on. Uh, he agreed that whatever time that was supposed to happen, that it could be, so it, it didn't need to be necessarily nighttime. Because some days, like in London, if you break into a house at 6 a.m. or 6.30 a.m., could be still dark, right? Yeah. Like it is now, like it is now uh, before the winter and during the winter. So I just said, look, can we just make sure that when he breaks in, it's already, it's after sunrise or it's just at sunrise. So, the, so I do feel some sort of um, presence of daylight outside the windows. Said, so, yeah, that's fine. Uh, so what is the actual light source then? So then we all agreed that the only light source would be one of the windows or the windows, but he would never open all the curtains because you wouldn't do that, right? If you're breaking in. 
But so he found a way to give him that action. So he crosses the room before she wakes up and opens just that, you know, gap on the window. And that was pretty much the source. Wow. So I we had to work, we had to work the choreography around that narrow source to be able to make it work because it's supposed to be dark, it's supposed to be backlit. But I remember when I'm when I say challenging, it's not because it was big. It, it's not the scale of it. It's not the number of lamps I had on my set, you know, because sometimes it is about the size of your pre-light. It's about the size of the sequence. Oh, we spent a week shooting that. That's not the case. But that was so um, challenging for me. You know, am I going to like this? How am I going to? You know, I'm gonna now be able to. Am I gonna be able to convince the directors and the actors that they need to help me now? Otherwise, we're never gonna see their faces. So it was really interesting the first rehearsal because effectively the set was dark. Yeah. Really, really, really dark. And then, especially when you step out, you know, for a coffee, and then you come back in, like, is this really it? <laughs> I mean, even even for me, it was like. Oh my God, what am I doing? But then because of the precision that Paul Whittington uh, uh, blocked the scene, I was kind of little by little able to enjoy it and embrace the challenge. So instead of like, oh my God, you know, is this going to work? I was actually, you know, little by little, you start enjoying how different it looks and how different that is from my usual work and how new that is that was to me as a challenge. So that's when you you know you feel the excitement. Sometimes the challenge is kind of a little bit overwhelming. Uh, again, not because of the size, but because of the way it should look. You know, I remember once, like years ago, reading a script, and and then right after having a meeting with the then writer director, and that was I'm not going to name names, but really experienced scriptwriter, such a nice guy, really really clever. But he was about to direct his first film. Right. So we had a meeting and I thought, oh, this is a different conversation because you're now the director. Right. So and can I just make one note about this, your script? And he said, yeah, 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 because you, now you're a director. So I think the question makes sense. Yeah, there's one line. There's one line on your script that says in the darkness we see. So my question to you now as a director is that what does that mean? Because if you tell me. Let's go pitch black. I don't want to see anything. I want a black canvas, right? And I just want to hear the voices. So that's one thing. The other thing is we can find a way to give your character a lighter. So in pitch black, this flame comes up. Mm. Or we could do it day for night. So we shoot it at day, grade it down. So you see the world. But it still feels like night. The audience will buy that as nighttime. You know, it's film nighttime. And it was really mind blowing for him. He said, oh, yes, because our job is to translate that document into imagery. Yeah. Right? But that was so new to him because you can write whatever you want. Right. In darkness, we see that works in, for literature. Right. For, you know. A, a, a romance, a book, but doesn't necessarily work on the filmmaking world. So what is the translation for that? So that's the thing, that kind of challenge is the ones that really interest me. So when Paul Whittington came with that challenge, I don't want any practicals on. I want him to open just a crack on the curtain. So I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? So I remember that being really vividly uh, a specific sort of feeling, you know, the challenge and the and the, um, and the technicalities and the solutions we had to find. It was really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything has to change. You have to make sure that the, they're facing the right way so that they get a little bit of the light on them. Actually, one of the, the thing that I love the most of that whole scene, honestly, is that little bit of red that comes through yes. on those curtains before he opens them up. Like it, Correct. there's just such a richness in that color. And it's, it's amazing to me that in a night scene, you know, you're still able to get so much out of it. Um, yeah. it, that, that was my 
you know, my favorite part of that whole scene. And I remember watching that and thinking like, they are really putting themselves in a corner with this scene because now you can't light from anywhere else. Like that's it. No, the first time he breaks in, that's all night for night. And so you don't get the reds on the on the curtains. It's just pitch black outside. Yeah. When he actually have the concert. So that's that was the only kind of um when we approached this challenge first, I said, is that happening at night as the first one? I said, no, 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 that could be the break of dawn. Mm. Because then, you know, the maid comes in with tea. So that should be just before seven. I was like, oh, that's something. That's a start. That's a start point <laughs> yes. for me, right? Yeah. Oh, the maid, the maid. Yeah, the maid. She would never come before seven, right? Yeah, yeah. No, she comes at seven. Okay, great. So he breaks in is like 630, let's say. So that gives me that excuse. So it's already daytime, etc. So yeah, it was really challenging. It's funny how, again, going back to scale, not even, not always, you know, the big sets are the most challenging ones, funny enough, you know. Some of the big sets on the crown, we somehow know how to like them, you know, because we've been to those locations before and I know my source is going to be outside, that a show like the crown gives me the infrastructure I need, you know, when I need the big sources outside, I know, you know, I'm going to have them somehow. So it's funny how sometimes just the, the more intimate scenes can be more challenging. You know, it's, it's, it was really good, that one. Really interesting scene to shoot, yeah. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ. Now, MZ is Education for Creatives, and there has never been a better time to hone your craft, learn more about this filmmaking world that we all know and love, uh, because, you know, times are a little bit different out there with COVID, and some states already are back in lockdown. So we might be spending a lot more time at home than we were hoping for this time, but the best way to spend that time is by learning and getting better so that when we come out of this, you are more skilled and more educated than you were before. And that's what MZ is all about. So when I talk about education for creatives, I mean, it's education for creatives, but also taught by creatives. Because we all know, you know, the course that you're taking is only as good as the teacher that teaches you. And when we're talking about MZ, we're talking about educators that you know and love. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is on there. And they're always introducing new courses. Like right now, one of their new courses is um, the Art and Technique of Film Editing with Tom Cross, A-C-E. Now, if you don't know who Tom Cross is, you've absolutely seen his films because he edited Whiplash and La La Land, among others. So we're talking about educators at the highest level that are uh, providing education for MZ. Like, this is what it's all about. Now, of course, there are hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based film edu filmmaking education all over MZ, and it covers different things like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. Uh, and you, yes, you can buy individual courses, but the best way to experience MZ is to become an MZ Pro member, because with that subscription membership, you have access to the library of footage, uh, to the library of courses, rather. So that is the way to go, and that's what I'm doing, and I strongly suggest you do the same. So how do you learn more about it? Simple. You go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, learn more, check it out for yourself, and use this time to get better at your craft with MZ, education for creatives. I want to talk about one of the bigger scenes in The Crown, and it's Princess Diana's wedding, because it, this is now the this is the season that everybody was waiting for, because like this is the Princess Diana season. So everyone yeah. has been waiting for this. I'm, I'm sure there's just so much pressure on your end to have everything be perfect, because people have a relatively fresh memory of these moments. And you need to replicate them. And you know that audiences are going to be paying very close attention to how accurate, yeah. accurate, accurate you are. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. Talk to me about how it was to make this Princess Diana story come to life. Um, well, I think luckily for me, I shot for the first time on, you know, the four seasons I've been working on, 
this was the first time that I shot five episodes back to back. So the first five. Um, and that's, let's say, that covers the, apart from at five itself, that I don't think there's any shots with Diana on five. But anyway, the first four introduced this young Diana. And then after the sixth, you get, you know, a more mature, and you see the, even visually, you know, then she gets pregnant as William comes up, you know, etc. So it, there's a, I think the season covers like, I don't know, 11 years or maybe 10 years of, of that part of the story. But I was actually really happy when I, because and, and not surprised because I think Peter Morgan really has this kind of ability of sur- surprising even us. I mean, when you read the script, like, where's the wedding? Where's the wedding? Where's the wedding? Oh, there's no wedding. So there's a, the rehearsal for the wedding, but not the wedding itself. And it's funny, again, because I like the informality of being there. I mean, when you first cut to Diana, waiting for Charles to arrive for the rehearsal, she's just sitting on a, on a, like a step, you know, the informality that Peter Morgan delivers and the way that Ben Caron directs the actors. So it's, I really like that more, the, the, the family side of the, the story instead of the grand side of the story. Well, it so makes it relatable, seeing, the, more, the more of that. And that's the, the side of the story that the audience doesn't know. Nobody actually saw that rehearsal. Uh, so that's, you know, you're just basically delivering new, new information, new texture, new uh, circumstances, right? Um, but we did, of course, we knew that we had to somehow suggest the grandiosity of the day, you know, yeah. the, the next day. Um, so but also because we've been so many times, there has been so many funeral <laughs> ceremonies on the crown that we go to the big cathedrals, et cetera, et cetera. It was actually kind of relieving to me to know that, you know, we're not going to shoot the, 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 the marriage or the ceremony, the wedding itself, because, you know, again, I like, really like those scenes because they are the actual grand, the big ones, you know, the, even for the rehearsal itself, Ben, the amount of light that we had outside that church, it's just ridiculous, you know? So in order to keep the set free again, so the actors can move around and you can shoot freely, you gain speed by doing that. So that's the big setup. But I've, it's less exciting to me, funnily enough, than the Fagan and, and the Queen sort of scene. I really enjoyed being there with uh, Diane and, and, and Philip. And I think Ben was really clever to somehow pay tribute to the scene we, we saw in season one. That was also the rehearsal where, where, where the young Philip, you know, Matt Smith Philip comes to the church and she, he's asking her, Look, I'll be there, but I, I don't want to kneel before you. And she said, no, well, you have to, because you're not kneeling before me. You're kneeling before the queen. So somehow the Diana Charles scene mimics the, the queen and Philip scene we had on season one, where they move away from the family yeah. for a little bit more privacy. So that, that was an interesting kind of a way of mirroring, you know, the mother and father to Charles and Diana. So... It's so full of texture and it's so interesting the way Peter, you know, writes the story. And it's just every, every single, that's why, that's why we all keep coming back to the show because it, that you never feel you're repeating yourself. You know, you never get bored like, oh, I've been here so many times. Even the private rooms at uh, um, the Buckingham Palace, you know, her, uh, the, the Queen's bedroom, Philip's bedroom, some of the tea rooms that we have on the show constantly, those are built sets. But uh, like, again, going back to the Fagan, Fagan and the Queen scene, I've had shot on that set so many times before. And then here I am you know, feeling very challenged by this, you know, the way the, the way that Peter writes the scenes, right? So again, it's very, it's very, uh, it keeps giving us challenges and excitement. You know, it really, really is amazing. And I am, I, I, I'm sure, I think season four, I can say it's my favorite. I think, you know, my episodes, my five episodes on season five, I'm so proud of them. I think they're very mature. I think they do deliver a more 
mature film style. I really do. I think the actors are better than they were in season three. I think the age is more appropriate for Olivia and Helena and Tobias. They are supposed to be 50 some now in season four. So they really, you know, they're more relaxed about, you know, you know, the, the overall uh, performance and 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 body language, etc. So I think we all felt much more. Uh, I'm going to say relaxed, but but confident. And again, going back to your first question, not all not all the decisions, visual decisions. We we don't. I don't think we keep asking ourselves all the time. Does is does this look new enough? I mean, are we? Is that the goal? Is the goal to deliver something that looks fresh and new? And again, it's another good opportunity for us to technically check what we want. So should I change my lenses again? Should I, you know, so maybe, maybe. So so we don't repeat ourselves. Let's talk about that um, lenses, camera. I, I want to I wanna learn more about what you shot on from a camera perspective and also what you, you talked a little bit about the lenses, how you're now doing super speeds. Um, in season four, but your camera package, what what did you shoot season four on and how does it differ? Does it differ from what you did on season one through three of The Crown? Well, I, I know that's a little confusing, uh, but, but maybe maybe it isn't. So seasons one, two, and three were shot on the Sony F55. So seasons one and two with the Cook Pancros. Mm-hmm. So Cook Pancros F55 for seasons one and two. Season three, uh, still F55, but then we move to the Zeiss Super Speeds. New cast, new lenses, but still the same bodies, right? Why? By then on season three, we the Sony Venice had come out already. But again, even on a big show like The Crown, we hadn't, the budget just couldn't contemplate that upgrade mm. because we have four camera bodies per unit on the crown and going up from four F55 bodies to four Venice bodies. That was a massive jump in yeah. cost. So I so I said, okay, I'm going to change my glasses, but I'll stick with the F55. And then throughout the season, I, I was all, honestly all throughout the season working with my producers saying season four needs to be done on the Venice. You know, they're almost discontinuing the F55 now. And you tell people that you're doing this on the F55, that you see the eyes. Are you really, you do the crown on the F55? Yeah. And so we moved, initially that happened because when I started on season one, the, um, uh, the because of the Netflix uh, 4K workflow, I, I had to, of course, test and rely on cameras that could deliver 4K. But I kind of enjoyed working with the F55. Then we tested the Sony, the Sony Venice during season three. And I was really, really surprised and really happy with the massive improvement that Sony did from you know the 55 to the Venice. And then throughout, I also had to work the budget and eventually just work with my producer was the best way to upgrade my equipment for season four. So season four was shot on Zeiss Super Speeds, like season three, same cast, same lenses, but we upgraded the camera bodies to the Sony Venice. And I really fell in love with the Sony Venice. I really enjoy using the equipment. I'm now prepping for another big series and um, I kind of of, said that I had a preference for the Sony Venice and we we made it work. I mean, we shot comparison tests, et cetera. Because I'm prepping now for a show that it's a different genre for me. It's the first time I'm doing sci-fi-ish oh, wow. uh, shows. And um, so I somehow I felt to me that I on anamorphic lenses now. So initially it there was too much too, too much novelty. I mean, not that I'm not used to working with uh, uh, anamorphic lenses, but coming from the crown, you know, after years using spherical lenses, vintage glass, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I'm still using vintage anamorphic lenses because I do have a preference for the softness and the, the, the soft contrast, et cetera. But like, I, I just, it just felt to me 
if I could use the Venice, that would somehow give me peace of mind so I don't have to test it so deeply. So I'm just bringing a piece of equipment that it feels familiar to me, especially now. So I'm probably going to go back and, you know, and vary and use Aries, you know, depending on the project, depending on the, the texture, the look or whatever. But I'm actually happy to be able to bring a piece of equipment that I enjoy working with. And it's now much more familiar in terms of like all the information and the features are in my brain now. So I don't have to, you know, think so much. And also, again, going back to my point, it gives me more speed, really helps me to speed things up. It's a very clever piece of equipment as well. So it's an interesting combination now, the the anamorphic lenses with the, you know, the 4K. Still, I'm still shooting 4K on this next job. I could shoot 6K on the, on the Sony Venice. But again, then the workflow gets a little too heavy. I was actually initially thinking about mixing uh, uh, 70 mil lenses and the, the two-time anamorphic. So I would have two kind of a, Hmm. to kind of different size uh, file sizes. So 6K for the 75 mil lenses, 4K for the, the two-time anamorphic. And then throughout my prep, all together, you know, me, the VFX department and production, we just thought it's it, it might be a little too much, you know. It just turns my life a little too complicated, you know, two sets of lenses, and now you're mixing 6K and 4K on the same set, it's just like, it's fancy. It's really cool to be able to have different glasses and et cetera. But again, I'm so very much driven by, of course, the look, but also efficiency and speed. So all that makes part of my preparation and, you know, what's the best piece of equipment? What's the best lighting equipment? What is the best approach to this show? Especially, again, repeating myself, because it's a new genre for yeah. me. But I really had to check myself in terms of like, what are my priorities? How to, you know, how to be, how, how am I going to be confident enough that I can still work on a nice pace, you know, on a new show with anamorphic glasses? They're much slower than the super speeds, way slower. Yeah. Some of my lenses are 3.5 now wow. compared to the 1.3 I have on the, you know, so it is a different kind of a mindset, a create, even a creative mindset where you have to work with your levels a little bit higher than I work on the crown. So, but it's, again, I love the challenge. I really, I, I actually chose to be doing this because it's new. Because What's it's the been, name of the we, show? Uh, I, I'm not sure I can, it, it's a, it's a, it's a series on the Star Wars universe. Oh, wow. But I, yeah, are you doing I it? Are you doing it for Disney plus? Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 episodes. Uh, written and show ran by Tony Gilroy. So it's really, I, I just don't want to give you the main title because I think it's, it could change yeah, basically. I yeah. understand. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a series on the, on the universe, on the Star Wars universe. Yes. So you're prepping that now. I am prepping where it's actually principal photography starts next Monday, the 23rd of November. Fantastic. Yeah. That's great news. Congratulations. My God, that's a great uh, franchise to be part of. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And again, um, it's also, of course, it's Star Wars, you know, this unbelievable opportunity for me. But I'm also very thrilled of being working because I'm working with Tony Gilroy. And I, I promise you, like, Michael Clayton is one of my favorite films. And I really, really, I have enjoyed you know, watching Tony Gilroy's films and the way he writes. And I, I'm, this is, this is the series I'm working on now. It's a series for, it's for grownups. It really is. I mean, the dialogues are absolutely solid and deep. So, you know, it's a very strong material. So I'm really happy. It's not only because I'm doing Star Wars, because that's, it's exciting in itself, but uh, the quality of the writing is, it's, mind-blowing it really is yeah. really really strong stuff yeah well that sounds like a great project you've got to promise us you'll come back and talk to us about it are you doing all the yeah. episodes i'm doing six of 12 wow yeah. that's great so again again trying to embrace this kind of a lead dp role because i'm shooting the first three episodes and i'm i had the long prep 
So, you know, with Tony and Toby Haynes, that is the director that is directing the first three now. So, and I'm directing one, two, and I'm oh, sorry, I'm DPing one, two, and three, eight, nine, and 10. Oh, great. So, and, and there's a, there's another two DPs doing three episodes each. So I'm the only one doing six. So yeah, yeah. Well, that it's is- a very interesting, it's a it's a bit massive responsibility, but it, I'm I'm just over the moon. I'm really enjoying this so much. Yeah, I can tell you're excited about it. Just as you're talking, you're lighting up. So, absolutely, yeah. when that thing is done and out, I would love to um, have you back on to talk about it. Just now, I know you only have a couple minutes left. Before you go, I just wanted to just to ask you about the way you had mentioned that you have four cameras, uh, four camera bodies for each crew um, on the Crown. How are you organizing those cameras? Are they all rolling at the same time? Are they like, how, how are you organizing that? Now, I can tell you it's much simpler than that because we actually, we the, we shoot the show with two cameras. Okay. But, but, I, but philosophically, what we say is a camera is the camera that tells the story. Mm. So that's the director's camera. That's where he focuses his attention. The B camera, is always offering a different angle or an insert. It could be just the just the with the queen's finger on that button. You know, well, really, we're gonna really be focusing only on that throughout the whole scene. Well, yes, because you need it top to start it and to finish it. Yeah. So sometimes it's just an insert. Of course, that insert can be done later, but you know, we just want it eventually, or it's a profile shot. That really doesn't compromise my lighting on. And again, because we've been, I've been working with the same crew, especially the B camera. He knows, he knows where, you know, where to place himself. But basically, it's a it's a two camera show. The third body, it's for Steadicam or crane work. So it's always pre-rigged on the truck, on the Steadicam. So we don't have to wait for those famous 30 minutes to rig the, the, the third or the second body on the Steadicam yeah, or the smart. crane. The fourth, the fourth body is technically an insurance body. So if something happens with one of the other three, then you, you can go and, and take it out of the case. But again, because we've been working together, they, the, 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 the ACs, they manage to be able to accessorize almost four bodies. So we can even have one rigged on the Steadicam and one being rigged on the crane, if that's the case. But apart from scenes where we have 300 extras or where there's actual demand for more coverage, we, we, I, don't think we, I, I don't think I've ever used four bodies on the same scene. We do use three eventually, on the exteriors, when we have the opportunity of going wide and etc., but it's it's. I think the whole look that what was so unique, I'm going to say, when we came on, on when we came with season one, is that because that's something we purposely and consciously decided. This should look and feel like a single camera show. Mm. So every shot is a dedicated shot. So uh, in, in opposition to the TV style, where you do have three cameras almost all the time, and then you compromise your backlights because, you know, how can you possibly light for three different angles? Yeah. So, uh, so that was the thing. So it's a single camera show that you get a bonus shot eventually from B camera. You get a nice profile, you get a transition, or you, you drift from the queen's hand to a profile. So it's just additional, hopefully sophisticated shots that don't look like a B camera shot. They should also look like dedicated shots. Yeah. So like when you're just doing simple dialogue, two people talking, is your B camera not even getting the other person? Your B camera's purely getting a detail. Well, that's my goal to never cross shoot. So we do eventually have, when you have two people face-to-face sitting on a, uh, I don't know, a restaurant, yeah. eventually that gives me opportunity to cross-shoot. But the A and B are always aiming to the same character. Hmm. So one is a little bit front-on over, over someone else's shoulder, and B camera is a little more profile or a three-quarter single, let's say. But again, going back to my philosophy, A camera is the director's camera. 
that tells the story. B camera is my camera. Yeah. So I somehow I the fun have the privilege. <laughs> the fun camera. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you got it. You know it. That's right. <laughs> well, the crown, all four seasons are available now on Netflix, and I strongly encourage you guys check it out. It's a fantastic show. You already know it and you already love it, and that's why you're watching us today. Uh Adriano Goldman, ASC, BSC, ABC. Any other letters we can throw in there? MD, were you a doctor too? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I don't know. I mean, it's an honor. It's an honor and a privilege, but it's almost fun. It's almost funny now, isn't it? Yeah. But it's it's but those those letters, those credits, ASC, BSC, they are for us TPs. They are like kind of you know they are medals, medals that you 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 carry on your chest. So I it's you know we all very proud. Of Please, those. if I had any of those, I would be. That's the, the first thing I would say. Yeah, well, exactly. It's it's a massive honor for you know for me coming from South America to be a member of my Brazilian association and you know this very solid prestigious associations like the ASC and the BSC. So you know I couldn't be more honored. And it's always a pleasure, Ben, talking to you. So I hope we have another opportunity soon. I would love that, and thank you so much, Adriano Goldman. Your work is absolutely fantastic, and of course we'll put links to all of your stuff on the show notes for today's episode. But until next time, Adriano, thank you so much. And uh, we love the show here at Go Creative Show. And definitely, we got to have you back for your Star Wars secret project that you can't tell us about. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks very much to your audience as well. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Adriano Goldman for coming back on the Go Creative Show to talk about The Crown Season 4. Now, For those of you guys um, that are interested, we also did an interview with him not that long ago, back in May 2020, so just a few months ago, uh, to talk about The Crown season one through three. So if you are Crown-obsessed people and want to get into the nitty-gritty of the previous seasons, it's all there at gocreativeshow.com. And of course, we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes for this episode. I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting this whole thing together behind the scenes. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, Matt Russell, who mixes, masters, and makes the show sound so good. You can find him and his team over at gainstructure.com. Of course, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. I also want to thank our sponsor, MZ education for creatives. Without these guys, the show would not exist. So please support those that support us. And that way we can keep pumping out these episodes for you guys. Thank you so much for watching. And we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.